Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. And here we go with the nose. Um, I've been apologizing to the panelists. Like, I still haven't recovered from my jet lag. And then I raised money at 6.30 this morning. <laughs> so I may, I may stop speaking English at some point today. That's entirely possible. <laughs> However, um, we have a great panel. It shouldn't be a big problem joining us. Here in studio is James Hanley, co-founder of CNA Studio at Trinity College. Ooh, is Dunkirk still playing? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, to through Saturday. Go see Dunkirk in Hanley Vision, as I call it, which is <laughs> the way that you should see this movie. I mean, it really, if you're going to see Dunkirk. On physical gonna, film. Yeah, on physical film, 70 millimeters, do it now in Hanley Vision. And make sure when you buy your <laughs> tickets, say, is this in Hanley Vision? Um, Sam Hatch co hosts The Culture Dogs on Sunday nights at WWUH, 8 p.m.? 8 p.m. indeed, yeah. yeah. So that's when I listen to it anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer. I don't know. It's like everything, really. Car buyer. I, yes, <laughs> a car buyer, uh, Ford Focus owner, founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. So uh, in our second segment today, I'll tell you about the second segment. We are There's two attempts to uh, continue the Star Trek line, sort of. One of them is the Orville. It's by Seth MacFarlane. Uh, it's supposed to be funny. Uh, I guess maybe that was a bad way to put it, but um, but maybe it wasn't a bad way to put it. Uh, there's also on CBS, but you have to pay for it and watch it on some kind of device hooked up to the internet, uh, something called Star Trek Discovery, which is in fact part of the whole Star Trek franchise uh, and it, it takes all of its tropes uh, pretty darn seriously. Um, so that that is to come. Uh, in the first segment, we are going to talk about at least one and perhaps two very prominent men, but in very different ways. Uh, if we have time, we'll talk about the role that Jimmy Kimmel is playing as kind of a, a, a conscience and access to sincere emotions in American public life, which turns out to be a unique role as opposed to one that a lot of people share. Uh, but first, uh, the news of the day has been uh, the New York Times um, coverage of Harvey Weinstein, a, a titan, a mogul uh, in the film industry, uh, and apparently, uh, according to this reporting, a kind of serial sexual harasser uh, in a way that sounds very familiar, sounds very familiar to people who read the stories about Roger Ailes and, and Bill O'Reilly, and I suppose the whole notion of the casting couch, uh, which goes way back in the history of Hollywood. Uh, with Weinstein, it's a little bit of a bigger problem because he is connected to a lot of progressive causes, Democratic candidates. He's the guy you can count on uh, for uh, money and his presence at a Planned Parenthood fundraiser or something like that, uh, and which may explain why it has been overlooked or looked past or just merely whispered about uh, for decades. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this. Um, James, maybe uh, – we should just begin. I mean, I think most people know who Harvey Weinstein is, but like how big a figure is he in the film industry? Well, he really is very big in a way that probably a lot of people don't realize that um, he founded a company, uh, Miramax, which really revolutionized the way what used to be called art films were released in the market. And instead of being in a tiny number of theaters and very few people seeing these films, he managed to get the casts together, the directors together, and the publicity campaigns that turn these small films into much larger films. Uh, a good example is the Merchant Ivory films um, that were uh, 
really, uh, they were very high quality. He he would go to the best writers, the best directors, and actually foster the development of properties that previously wouldn't have been touched by the major film studios. And so his influence and his brother, the, the, the two of them, they founded Miramax. And uh, Miramax became a, a powerhouse of art cinema, really, on a scale that nobody had ever seen before. And certainly, as far as we were concerned at Cine Studio, we were dealing with a, a, a major studio at that point. And it was actually quite difficult negotiating sometimes because they were very big in the market and they knew they had the good stuff and they would they would charge prices accordingly. And uh, I think that it changed the whole nature of the way films are released in the U.S. especially, but it also affected the entire world. And I think that that is something that, you know, the, the Weinstein's reputation rep rests on that. And that is so influential in Hollywood, that kind of success and that kind of shift, that I think that that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are, you know, they've been reluctant to, to actually bring this to the fore. Right. So, and just to keep updating you about all this stuff, uh, he has, A, issued kind of an apology saying that he mistreated <laughs> yeah. women, quoting Jay-Z. Sam, Jay-Z, maybe not the person I would quote, quote, right at this moment anyway, Thich Nhat Hanh or somebody like that instead, and also yeah. threatened to sue the New York Times <laughs> while admitting that they're basically right. Yeah, his apology was essentially uh, Phil Hartman's unfrozen caveman lawyer from SNL. <laughs> He's like, I'm a guy from the 60s. I don't know how to keep my hands inside my own pockets and not touch you with them. Uh, yeah, I'll try. I think that was his, his ultimate goal was to try to be a better person. Um, but yeah, like James was saying about the influence, the, the tendrils of Miramax as you know, for a young up-and-coming actor or actress, really it spread out all, to all the other studios. I had a friend that worked in the video dubbing department at Miramax, and, and all he did pretty much was make tapes and copies of tapes and send them around. And they were never going within Miramax. They were always going to other studios. Miramax was where everybody looked to, you know, they had so much product, so much indie product, and so many great actors and actresses in the films. Everyone was looking to see who they were going to use, uh, you know, to poach for their even bigger products. So if you wanted uh, a gig in Hollywood, it would definitely behooved you to stay on Harvey's good side. So it really clearly was a case where his power was, was so immense. In, in the New York Times article, uh, I think it was Ms. O'Connor said it, it was zero to 10, 10 on Harvey's side to hers right. as far as the, uh, the the weight and distribution of power, and that's that's pretty accurate. Um, and, and Carolyn, the other thing, uh, first of all, you as somebody, I, I live vicariously through your auditions, but most of the auditions have to do with uh, n with not a Harvey Weinstein greeting Thank you goodness. in the bathroom. bathroom. May I, wanna, <laughs> I mean, I reading... When, massage, when, please. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. You, that you've mentioned. Anyway. <laughs> Watch me take a shower? Like, yeah. what? The, the accusations were, to me, just chilling. The things, and, and first of all, I think it is, it, it's incredibly brave for the, the actresses who have come forward and have said things. And I even read an account uh, from a reporter who he, you know, just went ape on and I, I mean, but he became very violent. It's the same reporter, and violent, yeah. yes. became incredibly violent. Yeah, um, knocked one knocked of the reporters down, down the stairs, stairs, put the other reporter in a headlock, and dragged him down the street. But that's see, he grew up in the '60s or whatever, right? That's that's <laughs> what you just do. did that. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, <laughs> what do I get away with for saying I grew up in the '80s right? and '90s? Yeah. Like, you should figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, but I just don't. 
I, I, to, to me, it's, it's just terrifying that this has kind of laid under the surface mm-hmm. for so long mm-hmm. that somebody who is doing this, who has this kind of behavior, clearly there are rage issues, power abuse, you know, just sexual harassment, how it has taken so long for this to come to, to come out. And that being said, I understand how many actresses would probably feel like this could be so hurtful to their career, especially if this is like their breakout moment to get to work with him. I understand. I mean, I have never worked with a director who has uh, done anything like that, but you've had directors who do pull power, power plays on you. And you do feel like going to the producers and going, you know, going behind their back and saying like, I feel uncomfortable. This is not, this work environment is not great for me. You do worry. Like they're just going to find someone who finds that fine. Yeah. Um. So, I, that that to me is kind of the the sad and scary part of this, but I am really glad that it is coming out. But James, this whole bubbling under the surface thing has become so familiar now. I mean, whether it's Roger Ailes or, or Bill O'Reilly or Bill Cosby or or whoever, I mean, we're really getting used to this story that it's an open secret, everybody knew it, or a lot of awful lot of people knew it, and and nothing is done. Uh, and I don't know. It's almost like it goes more back to. To, to the divine right of kings or something. Well, exactly. I, I, that's a very good way of describing it, I think, is it, it's the sort of privilege of royalty kind of thing. Nobody wants to actually trip the wire that's going to get some heads lopped off. And there's a lot of money being made, and I think there's a lot of facilitators. And, for instance, you know, if you're a, a new star who's trying to get a job, and your agent is saying, watch out for Harvey, you know, probably, you know, get a good warning, you know, like, I think one of the warnings was wear a parka. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like, exactly what that meant, I'm not sure. But, I mean, all of those things, there are these facilitators in the background, kind of like uh, the hangers-on in, in a royal house, mm. you know, who are saying, well, you know, I know this is really tough, but just hold your breath, do it, because, you know, otherwise we're all going to lose our heads. And and Harvey Weinstein is the kind of person who has a great deal of heft in the industry. I mean, it really can decide huge amounts of money. And it's interesting about producers because producers, in a sense, are the source facilitators in that they're the ones with the money. They're the ones pouring out the money and they're saying, well, so-and-so, you know, you have to have so-and-so in this picture. Then we'll put the money in it, you know, and, he, uh, and Harvey Weinstein is, sort of, you know, part of that picture that is funneling this money to this production. And then all of these producers will then come on board and all of that money is threatened by somebody who comes and says, wait a minute, he, he, he wants me to watch him in the shower, you know, actually bring a suit out or, or actually say something. And it's very hard because if you look at most of these people, they, they're starting out very young. They're inexperienced. They're not really they, – they're not likely to find a lawyer who's willing to go after somebody so powerful. And it's one of those things that uh, it develops over the years to be absolutely enveloping. And so there are all of these warning things that are given in advance to say just watch out, but nothing's going to change. All right. So um – to be continued, I guess. I mean, some other things about this. Uh, Democrats are now trying to figure out whether they need to give money back uh, that uh, that Harvey Weinstein um, raised for them. Um, 
he has announced that somehow or other as a way of making reparations, he is going to rain a hellfire on the NRA. I don't really get that exactly. As opposed to really taking a long, hard look at himself, yeah. apparently. He's <laughs> getting instead, therapy himself. Yeah. Right. He's going to torture Wayne he's LaPierre. He's working instead. on it, everybody. Come on. Right. Yeah. Um, on oh, he's and, actually going to torture Wayne LaPierre? Well, he didn't use the word torture, but he, he yeah. said that he was going to make Wayne LaPierre's life a living hell. Oh. Um, and as opposed to, which is fine, except that probably first you should look at yourself, you know, and and then you could worry about all of Wayne's flaws. I don't know if I even have time for Jimmy Kimmel. I guess we can't play the Jimmy Kimmel clip. That's what, that's the, that's the way that we're going to solve this problem. But I would like to just like maybe end this segment on a somewhat happier, or more positive note. Jimmy Kimmel, uh, the late night uh, talk show host, has done something a, a couple of times now. First, with the health, he's injected himself into the healthcare debate because his own son was born with a heart defect. It helped him understand uh, and empathize with people who wouldn't have his resources to get this incredibly necessary treatment for a baby. Um, now uh, he has jumped into the gun debate partly because he grew up in Vegas. He can sort of understand uh, and sense and, and, and has a memory of the MGM grand fire there uh, as a kid. Uh, and he can imagine the incredible pain uh, that uh, that people are feeling right now as they lose family members, as they lose parents uh, to, to a gun massacre and wants to know if something can be done about this. Um, Carolyn, one of the things that's interesting about this is that it's – it seems it shouldn't seem like an accomplishment that Jimmy Kimmel can be moved to tears by the notion of you know fifty eight, fifty nine, sixty people being shot and their families being riven apart. But he's like the guy who can do this right now, which is weird. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a huge uh, Kimmel watcher. I'm not really a big late night comedy, you know, th- those kind of shows. I don't really invest much time in them. But Kimmel, I I did this week kind of look into it, and he he does have this. As a comedian, part of what can make you really appealing is to have that vulnerability where it's just very human and and you're in this unique position where you get to have this voice where it's kind of like the everyman voice, but also... where you know you're you're kind of able to dissect things and bring out the humor or bring out the the realism that people can look at things in a different way, and I think Kimmel does a really good job of that. Uh, where you know I I think it would be very weird to see like Stephen Colbert crying, right. uh, you know. It, it but for Jimmy Kimmel it it works, and it's not like a shtick. It's just a very genuine, and I think that that he has sort of like opened up who he is, and especially with the experience with his son, and I. I mean, I really did enjoy kind of going through and watching some of the clips. It, uh, it is. I mean, you know, there's there, seeing there's going to be, you know, the Dixie J- Chicks were told to shut up and sing. Oh, yeah. uh, he's going to be told to shut up and make us laugh. Oh, it, it's uh, it, once you kind of feel for him and and, and kind of. You know, feel that you know it's it's interesting seeing this guy exposing his humanity on television, and then you watch the clip on YouTube. Uh, all that gets shredded uh, once you you know look at the YouTube comments, and uh, he's he's just excoriated, torn apart from for simply just for uh, displaying crocodile tears to. But people I think com- that's what makes him so much more powerful. Like to yeah. me, I I saw that as that you know now he shows this like raw side where he can really find these interesting perspectives. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess it, it comes down to like maybe men aren't supposed to be crying. Yeah, I heard a lot of complaints about that. What is yeah. his, his old man show cohort, Adam Carolla, think about this gross display of yeah. Yeah, 
crying on television. Well, yeah. And then you know, they did host a show that featured girls on trampolines yeah, r- exactly. rather prominently. But uh, but we grow up. We we become different. And James, exactly, I do feel yeah. one thing. I was saying in the emails is I, I do feel that you know there is an appetite right now. I think for the heart. You know for I, yeah. I I agree with you. I think that that's true. And I think the. Uh, thing that seems very clear to me with Jimmy Kimmel is that the experience with his own family is something that obviously has caused him a kind of personal crisis about sort of who I am and who am I on TV. And um, I think that he does come across as entirely genuine on that level. Mm -hmm. And it's so startling because so few people do come across that way (laughs) Mm -hmm. because they're always playing the character they are and they're not really coming forth with this. And it's absolutely showing vulnerability and it's willingness to show yourself as being somebody really focusing on this. And uh, Sam, you mentioned the YouTube comments and stuff like that. I really think that there is an industry. I don't know whether it's in Belarus or Russia or, <laughs> or, or in Arizona. There's boiler rooms creating this sort of caustic comment to anybody who shows that kind of what they perceive as weakness. Mm-hmm. It did seem very well, unified. Well, and YouTube it was, comments yeah. in general, yeah. ha- having been a victim of, of yeah. some, yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah. It is a really like it's a crazy land. Sam, Sam, it might be a bot, right? I mean, yeah, actually, I'm, yeah, there was a very human. unified response of watch Ben Shapiro's video, which which just tore Jimmy Kimmel apart piece by piece and broke every little segment of him down and and, and proclaimed that this was all planned in the beginning. He he said that it wasn't political, but obviously it was going to be political because he had the imagery uh, you know planned in the background of all the senators and uh, so yeah. So there's that whole. Scenario, but that's pretty much the entire argument was watch this video, watch right. this video, watch so, this video. So yeah, it could be all bots. We're gonna go to a break right now. I do want to say, watch the Jimmy Kimmel video. It's very interesting too, and even sort of in terms of delivery, it's very interesting. You you realize, first of all, I actually think telling a joke is really hard, uh, and um, so in a way for Kimmel, this very naturalistic way of speaking, which I think would be difficult for a lot of people to do. I think I don't think politicians do it all that well. It's it seems to come rather easily to him. The way that he pours out his feelings and his story is incredibly effective. All right, people are going to ask you to support public radio. If you do it right now during our show, we get some of the credit. So uh, think about doing that. They're very nice people. Give them what they're asking for. We crushing late night, Jimmy Kim. We tricking late night. And we are back to the Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, thank you if you did give during that segment. It's time to get back to the nose, though. Uh, and here to do the nose, James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. Sam Hatch, who co-hosts the Culture Dogs on Sunday nights. WWUH, 8 p.m. Don't miss it. I'm telling you to listen to a different radio station. <laughs> Carolyn Payne uh, is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. So uh, we're going to switch over to two, um, I don't know, two glosses maybe on the Starship, uh, on the Star Trek Franchise and on on the all of the tropes that are involved in Star Trek, which has been around, of course, pretty much forever. Uh, and so, one of them is a comic gloss. The other one is a serious attempt to carry forth uh, all of the ideas or some of the ideas of the franchise. Um, we're going to talk about the comic one first because I think it's harder to do it in reverse. And let me just begin by saying Seth MacFarlane cannot get a fair trial in this town, or at least not on this show, because I, I really don't like Seth MacFarlane. I like him. <laughs> you do? I do. Oh, good. I, I 
like I appreciate his sophomoric humor. I like it. So Seth MacFarlane will get a fair trial. Yeah. Um, and uh, he is, of course, the creator of The Family Guy and lots of other things as well. Uh, in this thing, he has made the uh, decision to appear as an actor, as a character. Uh, the main character, in fact, his name is Ed. Uh, he uh, is somebody who works within works for the union, which I think is the same thing as Starfleet Command. Uh, he is given command of a, a mid-size uh, vessel. Um, and then one of the things that happens to him is that after he's uh, been given the rest of his team, he doesn't have uh, a first officer. Uh, and then he is uh, given as first officer his ex-wife, uh, his ex-wife who has uh, – uh, they have divorced over – well, at least nominally over an act of infidelity she had with an alien. Um, and But in fact, partly out of his incredible neglect of her, I will say parenthetically, she is played by the wonderful actress who played Tyra uh, on Friday Night Lights. Uh, and Tyra was, was the kind of person who might make the kind of mistake that marrying Seth MacFarlane represents. Anyway, we'll he- we're going to hear a little clip where they arrive on another planet uh, and McFarlane is, uh, McFarlane's character, Ed, is introducing his entire team uh, to the people of this other planet. Captain Mercer, welcome to Epsilon 2. Thank you for coming. Dr. Aronov, this is my security chief, Alara Katan, my chief medical officer, Claire Finn. Pleasure. And my ex-wife, Kelly Grayson. I'm his first officer. But if any of your research team needs an artless, jabby nail shoulder massage, she's the best there is. Doctor, you want to tell us why you falsely diverted a starship on active duty? You know you could do time for that. We need protection. Protection from what? The krill. There have been no krill ships sighted in this area. Come inside. I'll explain. So, Sam, one of the problems, I think you can hear right in this clip, I actually did do a little spit take there when he introduced everybody else by title and then introduced this is my ex-wife because that's, in fact, who she is to him. She's not anything else. (laughs) But, I mean, the rest of this is sort of like uh, a kind of labored setup that you might have for a pretty serious Star Trek derivative. It's a bizarre show overall because it's not for Seth MacFarlane fans because the abstract as South Park would call manatee jokes from Family Guy where it would you know, break off into these flights of fancy with no connection to the main plot. There's none of that here. It is ostensibly a hard on the sleeve fan fiction Star Trek series and they skirt around, you know, being able to use things like the Federation and all that. But I mean, once once you get down to it, it's uh, the next generation. I, and I hate to say it, but the second episode where they find uh, uh, a whole world that's inside a floating space station, there's this you know, bio-engineered community in there, and they, and they kind of have to help them realize that they're on a floating vessel heading towards a star. Uh, that was the best Next Generation show I've seen <laughs> since the Next Generation uh, dropped off the air. And the comedy is, is very – it's not funny. Mm-hmm. And there's, but there's very, very little of it. Uh, you could trim off like a couple seconds here and there and just have a new Star Trek show, albeit with uh, far worse special effects than what's airing on Discovery. The fourth, I think, and very newest episode, which I have not seen, has Charlie's Theron uh, in it. Yes. Uh, and I think it's directed by Jonathan Frakes, who was one of the pillars of the next generation Star Trek. So, um, so, so maybe he's going to get a fair trial here. <laughs> I don't, James. I just didn't. I'm gonna, I know James is going to be as pitiless as I am. So, well, I I must say, hearing that analysis, Sam was like, okay, I can see that sort of serious side of it. But I think that is the great pitfall, really. Yeah, is it's still a problem, right? It's, it's a serious problem, really. Trying to uh, trying to be a satire and actually doing it as well, and having in the in the sort of context of 
Star Trek itself has a very sort of serious pantheon around it of certain principles and characters and how it's developed over many, many years. And if you're going to satirize it, you probably have to do it in a way that has a kind of a kind of subtlety to it that that it, it, it constantly makes you aware of it being like a satire, really. But I, I agree that, that I found myself on on sort of like constantly thinking, really, they have to come in with this joke or that joke, and and it really sort of was like every every time it started to get interesting, some lame joke, you know, that that would come up that was then repeated again yes, and yeah. again as if the slowest wits <laughs> will be sure to get this one. And and so at the end of it, I felt sort of you know uh, what was uh, what was the point of spending that much time with it? It just didn't really and and it's a shame because you could develop those ideas. I I agree about that, but it just doesn't. Um, I don't know. And and Seth MacFarlane, oddly enough, I get the feeling he's sort of standing there waiting for the next lame joke. <laughs> sort of like it's it's like the timing of it is off. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, that I, James and I both had this. Uh, yeah, I'll go to the professional comedian here, but I mean, you know. <laughs> Beats are such a huge part, particularly of sketch comedy or this this kind of. I mean, every joke has a beat. David Steinberg is famous for directing Seinfeld episodes where he he just has this incredible ear for where the beat is, mm-hmm. um, and and. I, I feel like this is the opposite of a David Steinberg-directed show. Like I'm sitting there watching the beat fall and, and then the kind of joke kind of roll across the table for a second and people are kind of looking at the joke. And Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have to clarify. I am a Seth MacFarlane fan. I in no way endorse this show. <laughs> I in no way find this to be Seth MacFarlane at, at his best. Uh if the blurb, of course, will be, I am a Seth MacFarlane fan. <laughs> Carolyn Payne. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> you know, my mother once tried to tell me that I should, like, date him. She was like, you should try to find uh, Seth uh, MacFarlane. Uh, uh, and I was like, that's not going to, what Mom. are you going to do, write, it, write yeah, his right. people? I don't know. But here, so the, the, the thing with this show <laughs> is that uh, I felt like it was, it's like a parody of Star Trek, and it, Almost like doesn't understand how to be a parody of Star yeah. Trek. Yeah, like Galaxy I watched Quest, watch Next that. Generation like loosely, like you know back when I was a kid and it was on. Like I, I remember watching it, and I feel like this is written by somebody. Like the writers were people like me who like had a loose idea of what was happening and then just kind of ran with that. There was there's no none of that like deeper understanding that for real like Trekkie fans. It's just such a huge culture. It doesn't go like deep enough. And then the comedy timing thing, the problem with that, it absolutely. So Seth MacFarlane, one of the things I do love is Family Guy moved at such a pace. Like it just it, it just felt like sometimes you you had to watch the episode a second time to catch all the jokes and the references and the pacing just always kept moving. And, you know, this is if that was like a ball that's just continually rolling, this is like a ball that like drops and doesn't actually ever roll. Right. Uh, And and Sam, could we also say, I don't know, I mean, maybe this is an unfair thing to say. I feel like this has already been done perfectly by Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest, Quest, absolutely. Galaxy Quest is something close to a perfect comedy movie. uh, And it is a Star Trek pair. Why do another one after that? Yeah, and and when I saw the trailer, I'm like, all right, well, how are they going to out Galaxy Quest, Galaxy Quest? And the answer, of course, is they don't. And yet one of the strange things is all the tropes about the series, they they play them all pretty much straightforward. I mean, a lot of the the kind of science fiction premises and even the Dennis of these planets they encountered, they're they're played 
as straight as they would be in or taken as seriously as they would be in the Star Trek. It just lacks episode. the creativity that I yeah. expected it to have. Yeah, you think there's so much fodder here for him to get completely off the rails with making fun of these yeah. you know, people and, and himself and et cetera. And so. this is Seth MacFarlane who really kind of created a new way to to write comedy and do those like cut well, twos and all this. So I think maybe he's just trying to do something different and challenge himself. But yeah, because they're not going to say no to that. This is something that you wanted to yeah. see like workshopped a little bit more. Well, <laughs> I, I, yeah, go ahead. No, I was no, going to say I think that it. he's he's trying to originate something here that you can't really originate because it has such a pantheon in place mm-hmm. that uh, you know when he it, what he's done before is originate a style and a certain delivery of the comedy. I think that a Galaxy Quest succeeds, for example, because everything is just throwaways. It moves at lightning speed. Yes. Right. And people who need to get it or who, who are aware will get it. Some other people may miss a few things. But if you then slow take that and slow it down in the style of, of the Orville, you, you really take away the exhilaration of having somebody, having a sense that somebody is having fun with something, but they, they, they are taking account of all of its details. I had Here, never been so bored watching a comedy yeah, in my life. I know, it, it slows it down to a, to a leaden pace because of that. Well, we have to switch gears here. We have to go to the more serious, far more serious uh, attempt to uh, capture the lightning of Star Trek in a bottle. That is Star Trek Discovery. You have to sign up for some kind of CBS thing that is connected to the internet in Old order to watch and, it. And, and to your yes. credit card. And to your yeah. credit card, yes. Um, and so, so be, be forewarned. Um, we'll hear a little clip from this. I think you're going to see here, the two female leads, at least for the first two episodes, uh, that is um, Michelle Yeoh playing the, the commander of a Starfleet vessel. And then a character named Michael, who's actually a woman, uh, played by the same actress who plays Sasha in The Walking Dead, if that helps you uh, place her a, a little bit. Uh, she was also Larry Sanders' secretary. Um, anyway, she's terrific. Uh, no, no, wait, wait I, I'm getting her mixed up with the actress from The Orville. That's right. So this is <laughs> this is Sasha from The See, Walking Dead. See, that's why I said you can combine these right, two right. shows and yeah. get a good one. It's Sasha from The Walking Dead who plays Michael. All right, you're going to hear something is gone down between Michael and some Klingons. She's trying to explain it to her boss. Philippa. There are Klingons. Tell me what happened. He ambushed me. I hit my thruster pack to get away. I somehow knocked him into his blade. I killed him. But that object could be hiding a Klingon raiding party obscured behind that scattering field. If there are Klingons in the sector, they may be responsible for the damage to our relay. If there are Klingons in this sector, we should withdraw immediately. This is Federation space. Retreat is not an option. Whatever is over there needs to show itself. If it's hiding Klingons, we've got to flush them out. Target phase cannons on the object. We cannot destroy another culture's property on a whim. I didn't say anything about destroying it. Let's make them think we're going to attack. Target the object. We're locked on. All right, so uh, that was all kind of inscrutable, I think. But um, so I think uh, this is how we're going to negotiate with Iran now, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, the geopolitics of this thing are kind of interesting, right? Because you've got the Romulans who, and they've got the Romulans, you've got the Klingons, they've got this new leader, at least for a while, who is very sort of Geert Wilders, Marine yeah. Le Pen, and maybe, and sort of make Klingons great again. Uh, and but then there's this question about how you how you answer that back. Do you punch them in the face? And 
And yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's one of the things the show really sort of uh, uh, oversimplifies. I mean, it bites off this enormous sort of is it, the implications of where they're writing it. They're taking the story into a thing that is pretty heavy, and actually, it would be pretty hard to to figure out and to negotiate a way around. And uh, the show doesn't seem quite prepared for that. And so, making making the threat to actually, it, it, the whole issue of making a threat to destroy somebody or something that is dear to them, um, it contains the idea that, well, you've got to be ready to follow through. Mm -hmm. And the co problem is, of course, that that person has the power to possibly destroy you if they are indeed there. You know, James, starting, I mean, I think uh, James mentioned all these, the kind of first principles and codes and things like that that are embedded uh, in, in most Star Trek things. Although, Sam, one of the things we know is they violate them almost immediately. In this <laughs> yeah. thing, they're like, stop, they talk about violating it. The credits are barely over, and they're they're trying to violate one <laughs> yeah, of them. And even characters that, that are, you know, come out with this you know, plaintive plea, like, we can't, we can't kill this guy. He will become a martyr. And but uh, I'll kill him about 20 minutes from now. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, yeah. did, did, I mean, I think you and I are the people most likely to go forward, uh, boldly go forward with this series. Did it work for you? Or, I mean, are, do you feel like you're going to stay with it? I, I, th I think it's just started. It's the yeah. problem. I think I, and I need to settle in now that the show has begun. The part of the problem was that they aired the first part on uh, CBS mm. before they lured you into their – Pseudo Netflixian CBS All Access uh, miasma, uh, and then they don't really give you any satisfying answers, and it's really a two episode segment. That's really just like that would be the first twenty minutes or fifteen minutes of a movie. Mm -hmm. This big war is 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 begun. Uh, sadly, Michelle Yeoh's in there. She should have been yeah you know, a main cast member forever, uh, but apparently is not. And now they've established the show. Yeah, the, right. the, with Jason Isaacs as this new captain. That's what I was. Yeah. I was. Like the first two episodes, it was like it was a teaser. I could have done without all of that. The third <laughs> yeah. episode should have been the pilot. Yes, and because that that one, but I, I mean, after I suffered through the first two, I was like actually debating. I was like, if I don't watch the third one, am I going to be able to keep up in conversation? Yeah. And I was like, ah, do your homework, do the thing, and <laughs> watch it. And I was glad I did because that redeemed it for me. And I felt like the other two episodes. The first two were this very lengthy pilot with all this like backstory for me didn't do anything to help the show and especially a show that they're trying to like get people to essentially pay to watch. Yeah, CBS yeah, only aired one problem. half of that yeah. and they assume that you're going to want to give them your credit card to see the rest of it and you and haven't I, even introduced the characters. And I'm surprised the owners of the rights the, the you know who who are obviously trying to restart the franchise why would you limit it that way with such a relatively small group who are being asked to pay something that is I guess Netflix has just raised its price, so it's roughly the same. But yeah. still, I don't. I couldn't figure out exactly what CBS All Access is, other than Star Trek and uh, Big Bang Theory. And episodes. Big, oh, Big Bang Theory was the it, other thing. I, yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, it's not it, enough. In to... other words, it's self-limiting at, 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 at a time when they, the tenor of the show is that they're actually trying to broaden it. Yeah, right. and it's on Netflix everywhere else except the United States. Yes. And it really should be on Netflix here, but they're really pushing the CBS yeah, All it, Access so weird. hard here. Yeah. The other thing I think that might be a problem here is that there may be a too many cooks problem, right? There are uh, people who were involved in the original Star Trek who were sure. there. Yeah. Nicholas Meyer, who's a terrific, I think, overseer of this kind of stuff, is listed as a consulting producer. Eugene Roddenberry, I assume that's Gene Roddenberry's son or something. Or clone. <laughs> clone yeah. or something. You know. But I mean, that, James, may prevent it from really 
achieving a real specific kind of vision it can go after. Yeah, I think it, it, it you know that all argues for the idea that this is really kind of a a sort of experimental thing to to actually see. Uh, if we can do this, and I, one of the things I would think would attr- that would attract some of these high-powered backers and and writers would be that this limited exposure through a paid subscription would actually give them more freedom in terms of what they could do. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, that hasn't shown up yet. But I think that there's a possibility there. The one thing I thought that was a mistake in this whole thing was bringing the Klingons in right at the beginning. Sure. Literally yeah. right at the beginning. L- literally <laughs> right at the beginning. And because the Klingons, like, I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting about the Klingons, including the fact they have a real language. But one of the things that really bothered me was the slowness of the delivery of the Klingon lines, <laughs> complete with subtitles. Right. That, big that, subtitles, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, big, really big subtitles. Yeah. You thought... Very interesting font choice, too. (laughs) Yes, that was another thing, too. Nobody puts fonts in a serif. Nobody puts subtitles in a serif font. It was very (laughs) strange. Was it copper plate or what did they use? It was something there. But the the real thing was the the fact that that kind of slowed things down. I mean, I think they would have been much better to use a much less sort of uh, a a stylized villain, if you like, you know, something like the Borg or something like that, that would have focused on the people like Michelle Yeoh. And, and the other characters yeah, who who really had some charisma. Well, we have to go to a break. Although I want to say, these are not your father's, I guess I'm your father, uh, your father's Klingons. No. I mean, they're all like united colors of Benetton, you know, and there's like a white Klingon. And, uh, <laughs> they're just but very why different. Why can't they talk? Well, they, <laughs> you know what the problem is? I think, Sam, the problem is people speak Klingon, right? Yeah. There are people there who watch these things who are going to go, that's not what he said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't say right. all of that. You know, all right, we have to go to a break. Start date 10 6, Today's show is produced in a red shirt by Ensign Jonathan McPants moments before he died to prove this was a serious situation. Also by me, Kyone Wolf. I'm kind of the Whoopi Goldberg Guinan character here. Amanda Fish was not on the away team. The part of Bill Curry was played by DeForest Kelly. On Monday show, we'll be back with the scramble. And now, back to Colin. All right, here we go. We're going to make some recommendations to you. Uh, James Hanley, you go first. Well, um, I was going to make a recommendation, but I have to say something else I was thinking all day today. Uh, I feel like I'm a frog in the boiling pot at the moment, <clears throat> uh, having read the new pronouncements by the Justice Department that transgender people are not going to be projected, the part of the attack on LGBT people. There's a no, new pronouncement that birth control services uh, a part of the attack on women. Um, black people being treated. I, I just feel that we're in a terrible state at the moment and people need to be thinking about what we need to do, how we need to react to this. I, I, I've been wanting to hide from it, but I felt I couldn't. So that's why I couldn't make a recommendation. Okay, so you're endorsing activism. Yes. All right. Sam, what have you got? I'll do two. Briefly, Blade Runner 2049. Uh, go see it right now. Uh, you know, support yeah, you know, NPR, and then run out and go see the film, and then you know support NPR again when you get back out. But take some time out today. You know, quit your day job. Go see Blade Runner twenty forty nine. 
Uh, it will be the topic next week on the news, too. Yeah, and, and I won't be here, sadly. I already complained to Jonathan about that. Uh, but then I am going to be part of a, an event next week at the con- uh, convention center called Retro World Expo 2017. And it is largely a gaming event and vintage gaming and all sorts of people doing competitions, etc. But I'm going to be doing a panel on laser discs and laser disc players, uh, optical media from the 80s and the 90s. And uh, I'm going to be screening some later that night. And it's going to be a good time playing vintage video games and hanging out with a bunch of nerds. So, yeah. And that's next weekend? Yeah, the 14th and the 15th over at the uh, uh, Connecticut Convention Center, Retro World Expo. All right. Jonathan says he went to that uh, last year or two years ago. It was Perfect. pretty cool. Yeah. We'll hang out. Carolyn. <laughs> okay. Uh, I... First, I uh, want to say there is a show on Netflix called Big Mouth, and it is so funny and uh, irreverent. And yes, it has all the sophomore humor, but it kind of is in, in the vein of Family Guy, but it is just really clever. Is it animated or it's is it? It's animated. Yeah. And it, um, it, I mean, Maya Rudolph is her, she's one of the voices, is spectacular in it. Uh, just definitely check that out. It's I, it's so easy to just binge all 10 episodes and you will laugh to the point of tears with it, I promise. Um, and also, I'm sure you're going to endorse this, but Nightfall is tomorrow night. Um, I really think that that's a beautiful thing here in Hartford. Uh, it has great like music, dance, puppetry. Just go. I plan on uh, being there on a, on a blanket with some wine, enjoying it. So I think it's in Bushnell Park this year. So you should go check that out. 6 p.m. in Bushnell Park. Um, all right. Uh, I, when I have a little bit more time, I'm going to endorse the city of Belfast, one of the places that I was in, in the last couple of weeks. It's an amazing place. Uh, I'm going to do something simpler right now, particularly because the producer of this show goes by the nickname Pants. I'm going to ind- endorse the pants that I'm wearing, the pants that I traveled in. These are called they're, – they're made by pri- – see, I think when you travel, you need p- pants that are crushable, you know, that are lightweight, that will look OK when you take them out of the suitcase, that wick out water and moisture pretty well. So these are made by Prime. I'm pretty sure they're called Stretch Zion. They're a nice kind of stretchable kind of fabric. Uh, And, uh, you know, when you travel, you need lighter weight clothes and stuff like that. I bought these for the trip. They're just – they're so great. I love them so much. So you can get them at REI. That's the main thing. So go to REI and say you want the kinds of prana pants they were talking about on the radio. And they won't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, So Tom Petty also is one of the uh, many stories of this week. At the beginning of the week, we found out that Tom Petty had died. So we will uh, end our show today. And there will be – people coming on to ask you for donations. Please give donations. Please make pledges to this station during the break. We get credit for it when you do. This song is Wildflowers. And thanks so much to Sam Hatch, Carolyn Payne, and James Hanley. We'll be back on Monday. You deserve the deepest of covers.